Hello, I am Joel McLeod. I'm Roland Tana. And welcome to a special edition 905 Roundup uh, here on the podcast. Uh, it's been a while since we, we've done one of these things, but we wanted, Roland and I have been wanting to, to follow up on two episodes that we did a while back uh, because the, the topics are back in the news uh, seemingly this week as well. Uh, we have a, a special guest returning as well. So this is, this is kind of a, a bit of a throwback uh, 905 roundup. So we're, topics uh, that we're going to talk about today, folks, are we want to follow up on the episode that we did with uh, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, uh, President Karen Brown, on uh, essentially violence in our school system uh, and, and how that has progressed or not progressed, uh, as the case may be, as well as our, our episode with uh, Natalie uh, Mara of the Ontario Health Coalition uh, to talk about healthcare in uh, the, the healthcare status in our in our province, and our special guest uh, to join in, uh, folks. You may remember him from TikTok, uh, social media, uh, other places uh, of note. Uh, but Frank Dominic, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Always great, great to have your insight, and uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Looking forward to complaining uh in a different venue <laughs> <laughs> fantastic before we get into that folks we are just going to take a quick break uh to recognize the sponsor of this week's podcast okay and we're back so uh let's start off with education um basically where I know that this is this has popped up again in the in the news. We have uh, uh, violence in the schools, violence from students against their teachers, and it's not just you know it's not the worst places, uh, worst schools in Ontario. It kind of seems to be a bit across the the board a bit. Uh, for, uh, Frank, you're a teacher. Maybe you could give us an insight in terms of like what what is it like in in Ontario schools, uh, particularly maybe in the 905. So like it, once again, it, it's. When, we, when people kind of think about education and stuff like that, it's, it's so different across the province. But like in my classroom, so for example, if somebody was to say, uh, have I ever experienced violence in my classroom? No. Have I ever experienced violent intent or the threat of violence in my classroom? Yeah. I've had students who have slammed doors and thrown things and stuff like that. And, and that's no different though. Um, generally from what it was like when I was in elementary school, like I, as a kid had a couple of temper tantrums, I never hurt anybody, but I definitely once or twice threw a chair in, in my prepubescent and puberty years when I was a developed, when I was still developing with my ADHD, I was, I had a lot of, uh, social issues in that regard. So I think we have to keep in mind that there are incidents and there are scenarios where it's like, you know, it could be a kid who's going through something. We don't know what their home life is like. We don't know if there's a developmental issue there or, or social issue there, um, but like, for example, my wife last year uh, or two years ago, actually had a kid in grade two, threaten her with a pair of scissors and say that he was going to attack her. And, and I can't even use the language that he used a grade two. I can't even use the language that he used because I don't want you guys to have to bleep everything out. Um, and, we and wouldn't so, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you know what I mean, right? It's, yeah. it's a scenario where like uh, maybe you might get flagged on TikTok or, or on Facebook if, if, if the, the, the specific wording is there. So there are some kids who um, 
the, and, and we don't know where, where it comes from. You can say, oh, it comes from home or maybe there's something wrong and the kid needs to get help. And, and there are ways of looking at that. But when we look at systemic violence, so for example, uh, as a Tompkin Public School in Peel, as mm-hmm. well as York Memorial in Toronto. So if anybody remembers York Memorial early, earlier this year, just Google York Memorial uh, violence and you will see all the floods of articles from October and November and um, whether it was weapons or fight clubs and, and all this kind of stuff, there was, there was a lot, a lot going on there. And, and I, um, I, I knew some staff members there and, and I heard stories, um, plus the stories that you saw online. And when, when you consider the fact that this is stuff that normally we don't consider to be like the reality of Canada, this is like, oh, this must have been an American school, right? And that was like uh, when I did my stories on this, um, all the comms were like, uh, oh, my God, are you sure this wasn't a school in Texas? Are you sure this wasn't a school in Florida? Um, and that was coming from both Canadians and Americans. So everybody is in disbelief of, of the violence that we're, we're facing in Ontario right now. And it, it's not like it's overt violence where it's like we're constantly dealing with um, weapons and stuff like that. But even small acts of violence add up because there is no reason why a child should have to witness violence in their classroom. And, and as I said, so I had developmental social uh, issues growing up with ADHD and, and other issues. And yes, there, there, there are incidents where a kid who is trying their best and is going through some stuff can cause a ruckus in the classroom. But it's if it's ongoing or if it gets to the point where children are being hurt, teachers are being hurt, EAs are being hurt, it goes beyond, oh, let's try to help this one individual and into a territory of there is a pattern. So how do we identify what is causing this pattern and how do we solve it? And I don't have an answer for that because it's like, it's, it seems to just be out of control. A, th- a theme that, that I've come across, well, actually, first of all, I just want to, you mentioned the Tomkin Middle School. And remember, this is middle school listeners, not, not a high school. So these are quite young children, you know, not the youngest, but middle school age. Uh, they're not six foot tall. They're not about to go out into the workforce. Um, a letter, a sort of public letter was put out yesterday by teachers from the Tompkin Middle School in Peel region. Uh, can't read it all here. The letter's too long. But I mean, I could read out a couple of edited highlights here. Um, it's become impossible to maintain any sense of dignity at our schools. Students will come up to your face and tell you to fuck off. Students will ignore any boundaries or structure remaining at schools. Students have shown time and again that they are willing to uphold any type of decency towards staff and students in buildings. Students have defecated on the floor of the bathrooms. They've run through the hallways uh, throwing water at each other. That seems like small, small, small for I compared with the other stuff. Vandalizing washrooms. And I, and I know from conversations with other teachers that, you know, vandalizing washrooms, this kind of stuff, it's kind of fairly ubiquitous it seems to be at our schools that that you know the bathrooms have the doors taken off because you can't let the children close the door because of what will happen if they do that Um, there's degrees to the bathroom stuff like just like mm -hmm. i was in high school in 2008 to 2011 ish and uh before i had gotten to that high school um, I was like, yo, why are there no mirrors in any of the bathrooms for the guys? And it's like, well, because people used to like pour lighter fluid on them and light the mirrors on fire or smash the mirrors. Uh, so we, I've never had mirrors in my bathroom for my and, entire high school. Career. And to be fair, I mean, when I was at school back in, you know, the Stone Age, um, <laughs> the, the, the boys' bathrooms were not a pleasant place to go either, even back then in the, in the 80s. So it's not like 
bad behaviour has always existed, uh, and it's a difficult difficult area to monitor for obvious reasons. Um, but I mean, the list goes on and on about but the stuff that's been done, and it does ring true from the conversations that I've had with other teachers. Uh, in, the, in the conversations we had in the run-up to our interview with the uh, the uh, EFTO uh, um, uh, president Karen Brown, of of kind of standards of discipline just being not just declining, which has probably been a constant and perennial complaint of teachers. It's like, oh, t- children these days are so much worse than they used to be, and you can appreciate that. Well, maybe that's just the way teachers always feel, but that there's something fundamentally different here and that worse still that they don't have that the school administrations do not have their back in this so the the real complaint that grabs my attention in in the uh, in the um Tompkins school complaint is that after all this behavior of of people threatening violence of pulling exacto knives of vandalizing etc etc no one's been suspended no one's been you know there have been no converse consequences other than restorative conversations with students and parents who are still willing to show up i highlight one of the things in terms of not getting suspended just in terms of the sanity of that mm-hmm. so yeah threatening other kids with exacto knives another uh, situation here hitting somebody so hard with a meter stick that it knocked out one of their teeth I mean, it's like, these are reasons to call the police. These are physical assaults. This is breaking the law. Uh, there should be accountability for that. Restorative justice is not... Has its, you know, I don't want to be a knee-jerk against that kind of stuff. Um, I, I understand the point of, um, you know, trying to make children understand why things should not happen. But at the same time, at some point, there needs to be a sort of hard line of like, you've crossed the line, you're in big trouble, this is what's going to happen now, you know? Does does that sort of resonate with you, Frank? No, so like, we're in this weird situation, because like, so, like, like, for example, I, I, I hate it when people are like, you know, we don't fail kids anymore, and they don't know consequences. Well, the kids who used to fail weren't the kids that like for example when i was in high school my average in grade 10 and 11 were in the 70s and i i was a i should have been a high performing kid i should have had 90s um and instead uh i didn't try until grade 12 and then okay university matters and then my average is like a 93 right um because and that's what happens with a lot of teenage boys they don't really try until grade 12 and then all of a sudden their marks skyrocket um and so when we talk about like oh we don't fail kids anymore well it's not it's not kids who need to kick in the butt like i needed who are the ones who um, experience the consequences of failing. It's the kids who really struggle and we want to keep them in school. So when we talk about why don't we fail kids anymore? Well, because if we fail kids and we don't keep them on track to graduate, maybe they don't graduate or maybe they spend more time out of school. They get involved in, in whether it's gangs or whether it's involved in other forms of crime or or even just not feeling a sense of community and not uh, fully accomplishing their abilities. Failing a kid d- does not truly benefit anybody because like when we talk about earning your high school credit, earning your degree, what they need to earn are the skills involved. And we can still get them those skills without them getting a 90. They don't need a 90. Getting them to the 50 for some kids is good enough. So, and I, and I think if that's where it starts with some, in some people's minds, oh, schools are getting too soft. Okay, so that's the first thing in people's minds. And then the other thing we have in people's minds is, okay, we don't have dress codes anymore. So kids can do whatever they want. You want to get into the human rights conversation and that's a whole separate thing. But 
there is a dress code. It's just that we can't really tell somebody what to do with their body because that's the world we live in. Even in Canada, um, depending on your job, um, there aren't dress codes for certain careers. Um, going even further than that, then we talk about, okay, well, so how about suspensions? There's no punishments. There's no consequences. And this is where we get to a tricky situation where we have these two main issues that I'm seeing. One is progressive discipline, which a lot of teachers and administrators don't understand what it really is. And it's that discipline is supposed to start with like, hey, let's talk it out, let's work on it. Then you move up to, all right, let's, you're going to be punished, but the punishment is going to be one that is easy to deal with. It's going to be in school. We want to keep you as part of the community. It's kind of like a three strikes thing, but you know, you, you, you keep escalating. The problem is, well, if the kid's first incident is a violent act where they threaten a kid with an exacto knife or smack a kid with a meter stick, well, how do you have a conversation about that? It's not really appropriate to do progressive discipline when the, when the first, I'm not saying this was the first incident, but mm-hmm. the first incident could be something uh, massive. And, and I've seen, I, I, I wish, I wish I could talk about some of the things that, that has have, have happened in my school, but unfortunately, like that's just not uh, appropriate. Um, but I, I have seen some things where kids who on their first offense do things that I would consider to be hate crimes. And um, like, there, there's not really, when you talk about progressive discipline, it's very, very hard to, to work within that framework. Um, but on the other side of things, and, and, and I, w- I want to make this very clear, a lot of the kids who do stuff like this, their parents, it's, it's not like, a, oh, well, they learn it at home thing all the time. Sometimes, yes, but, but sometimes you, you get kids and you meet the parents and the parents are like, we, we, don't, we don't talk like this at home. We don't engage with this type of stuff at home. We're a very open and welcome family. Um, and so a lot of these kids, especially young males, I, it's coming from Joe Rogan. It's coming from Andrew Tate. It's coming from, and there's nothing yeah. wrong with, once again, consuming Joe Rogan content, but I'm talking just the, the general manosphere of, of right. these kids are engaging with. Well, so, yeah, I, I, the one thing I was just going to say, just, just, yeah. sorry. And then yeah, just, it's just, there's, there's no um, proper method with parents uh, because you, you don't want to upset the parents because you don't want to deal with there being this big issue coming out of something small, but at the same time, like some parents are, are demanding and craving punishment, even for their own kids. And so what we're going to pick and choose who gets to be dealt with in certain ways. Like it's a very, it's a very weird and, and robust constantly changing amorphous blob of punishment and 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 there's no real set in stone guidelines for it well i i've always had a problem with the i, I find the, the argument that i keep saying and then the, the letter in question is actually up on on twitter it's a, a a twitter account called at toronto teacher x and you're going through the replies to it and you know you get the into the oh where, where are the parents you know and it's the parents parents have this sense of or kids have this sense of entitlement parents aren't disciplining enough and i always find that that argument to be bunk because that argument has been around since schools were invented to, you know parent, parents don't discipline their kids enough and 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 kids kids always have it too easy it's it's there's that argument has always been there so i don't buy that that's what's happening uh-huh. here i think there's i i think you touched upon a, a bigger factor though is that you know when you get into the joe rogan and the andrew tates of uh, of the world, because the one thing I think is different in this current age that we're living in is social media is the fact that every kid starting in middle school kind of has access to, uh, to an iPhone or a smartphone and is able to go down those rabbit holes that I think I would hope 
you and I and our listeners would kind of have a red flag and say, okay, you know what? This is this is bunk. I'm, I'm going to steer away from this. But when you're that young and impressionable and you're looking for answers, it's easy to kind of go down that rabbit hole. And I, I, I don't know how you combat that because the other problem is parents, I, I don't think, are equipped themselves on how to address that. How, how, how do you address that kind of toxic masculinity yeah. So I and I also and I also argue some parents also I think buy into it. I know for a fact as well that some of them buying into it and say, oh, these guys aren't so bad and and they don't take it seriously mm-hmm. in its own respect. I, I was so I was really on the internet by the time I was about ten, grade five. Mm-hmm. I had social media grade seven. Um, like once again, it's kind of messed up to say, but like I was really on the internet at a young age back when the internet was more unregulated and more of a wild west situation. And I saw messed up things as a kid, like not even sexually explicit content, but like, like ISIS beheading videos or whatever the organ, whatever was before them, uh, all that kind of stuff. And like, I saw this stuff as a kid. Cause like, this was so easy. You can find it on Google and like people would just share links in a messenger chat. Um, and you don't even know what you're watching until it's, it's too late. So, so the internet's not like that. The internet is not like that anymore where the kids who are on it are being exposed to all of this so instantly. But, but the truth is that stuff like that still exists. And so when we talk about like what kind of content are kids consuming, the one thing that I would, I just want to kind of make clear is that we don't know what kid is consuming, what content we don't know what kid is consuming, what level of toxicity, because I think that if a lot of people saw what I consumed as a child, they would have think that I would have turned into some kind of degenerate adult with no moral guidings and no uh, understanding of, of empathy. And I think that I have grown into an adult who is considerably different from the type of content that I consumed on the internet as a kid. Mm-hmm. The problem is that um, when it, because it wasn't so popular back then, I could kind of just deal with it on my own and, and come into it on my own. But because everything is so shareable now, and because it's become more of like a fad thing, oh, you don't watch Andrew Tate. Oh, well, you don't do this. You don't do that. Well, then all of a sudden, it, it, even if you don't agree with the content, you have to consume it and you can't process it on your own because you're, you're part of a conversation. And so I think that there is even some peer to peer indoctrination outside of, of adults and outside of the content creators themselves. I mean, I wonder to the extent to which, you know, we, we say, well, I think, okay, so let's, let's take as a, as a fact that the, the, the behavior in school is worse than it used to be. Uh, and if we do accept that fact, it's like, okay, well, why is it? Is it because parents are worse or is it? And when I was a kid, it was all about, um, we we're all going to be corrupted by, by, it sounds so naive now. That, that it was going to be video games and uh, and you know eighteen uh, you know uh, movies from from the from blockbuster <laughs> that was going to corrupt society and now it's like oh that's just you know <laughs> that's not going to be your problem uh, and I wonder if it's it's not so much that that the things that children are dealing with have changed or are different it's just that that, that we are, are are not implementing the basic kind of boundaries that the previous generations had. Now, you, know, you mentioned you have ADHD. Uh, I had ADHD as well. Uh, uh, and you know, I am so happy to see that the sort of accommodations that happen now for, for say, you know, when I was a kid, kids with ADHD, I had, I'm the more kind of dreamy, look out the window type of ADHD rather than hyperactive type. But 
for the kids who were hyperactive, they, who were always just branded as naughty, as troublemakers, as, as, as no hopers, you know, I'm so happy that that's not the case anymore, that there's you know, the treatment, that, 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 that the classrooms are, are uh, willing and able to, to make accommodations and make learning better. But at the same time, even, you know, I sometimes see some of the things that are done for ADHD kids and think, I'm not sure that that would have actually helped me or any of my ADHD sort of compatriots. It's like, it's like giving extra time to do a test to someone with ADHD is like giving a heroin addict heroin, you know? It's like, don't give us extra time. That's the last thing you want to give us because we're just going to waste that. <laughs> yeah, and, and so like I, I grew up right in the beginning of, of those types of accommodations. So like, mm -hmm. for example, um, at first I was told that my, my, my school board, your Catholic district school board couldn't accommodate for me. Um, I was violent outbursts, as I had mentioned earlier. Um, but then they found out I was gifted. We're going to get you a laptop, one of the first laptops in the whole school board. You're going to, we're going to send you to a new school and, and it's not going to be a new school where they put violent kids. You're going to be in a school with, with other gifted kids and, and we're going to give you this and we're going to give you that. So magically, all of a sudden, because I scored a higher number on a test, I was treated better than all of the other kids, which I, I get why they wanted to do that for me because they, they saw that I could succeed and they wanted to help me succeed. But, and, and back then it was, the, the tech was so much more expensive, but we need to now make sure that we're giving every kid the chance to succeed. So like, for example, extra time, basically everybody with an IEP gets extra time. And so like, I maybe once in a while used it when I was in high school and elementary school, it would mainly be if I, if I dozed off during a test, if I was just staring off into space, I would use whatever time I'd spent staring off into space. I would try to not take an absorbent amount of time. And I find that a lot of kids are, who, who have IEPs are really good about that. They, they don't want to take an extra 30 minutes. They want to take an extra five, seven, 10 minutes. They, they don't want to be seen as abusing the system. Um, and, and so, but, the, but it, it is difficult because you're like, yeah, like when we, so one of the, the ways I explain it to people, it's like when you're uh, training for something, whether it's a marathon or climbing a mountain uh, or running hurdles at the Olympics, you don't start by doing uh, everything all at once. You start by doing one thing at a time and then you tack on the next thing and then you try a harder thing. So you first, you try sprinting and, and jumping separately. And then when you're doing hurdles, you, you sprint and jump and sprint and jump until you get to the point where you can actually do the hurdles. The problem is that uh, when we, when we get rid of all of the, uh, difficulty and challenges. It's not that I, I hate using the, the term learned helplessness, um, but we, there is a small amount of that. And for, for many kids, it's not a problem because they don't want to use all those tools, but for some kids who just want to seek that shortcut, and I don't blame them because they don't have the, the, the fully adult brains to think through why it's important for them to, to learn these skills. They just see that shortcut and they go for it. And then in the long run that, that hurts them. So we're in that, once again, that weird sticky place. We're like, so we just get rid of all accommodations for everybody. Well, we'll know that doesn't make sense. Okay. So do we lower the accommodations? Okay. So then what is the bar? What, like it's, it, everything's amorphous. There is no set defined boundaries for anything. And that's what I keep going back to my head. It's like, and there's an, almost no way to do it. Right. It's, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, I was, gonna, uh, I, I was thinking like, you know, what, what can, what can governments do then? You know, what, what, how do we change, how does our ministry of education change the parameters so that we can better, uh, help, I, I'm going to say help kids uh, succeed, not, not discipline. Cause I think that's just a too low of a bar. Um, I, I think like, how do we ensure that the kid, these kids succeed at education? 
at, at getting the skills and tools that they need to succeed in life um, rather than just, okay, how do we discipline them? Because I'm not I sure think, that's yeah. necessarily the answer. I think the solution is a lot easier than people think in terms of like, because we're thinking these grand plans, you know, targeting right. individually. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's you cut the class sizes in elementary school in half, or maybe cut it down by 20%, 25%. And you increase and, and you have to pay these people. We can't pay the minimum wage like we are. You increase the funding for the amount of EAs that we have. And every kid who needs an EA gets an EA from JK until the end of grade three to help them learn those skills. And then once again, like it depends on, on what age they're at, we provide different accommodations. But the reason that I became so successful or however you want to say that I came out compared to where I could have been in grade one, where they wanted to, to remove me from my school and put me into a school for kids with anger management issues and social disabilities and stuff like that. Um, from where I started to where I am now as an adult, I am only here because I was given every accommodation, whether it was the laptop program, being in the gifted program, uh, having a school psychologist to talk to and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I had a team behind me and it worked. I came out the other side in such a better situation that I could have ever dreamed. Even if my parents had put me in private school, I would not have gotten that quality of care. And we need to give that to every kid, but that means funding, funding. And that's a lot of money. But see, that's right. We're going to, I call already. I'm here. I know I'm hearing the, uh, the naysayers uh, listening to you, Frank saying, you know, we're, we're just going to accommodate these brats, these, the, you know, these punk kids that are, um, you know, hitting another knocking teeth out with meter sticks and, and, yeah. and what have you, we're going to, we're going to accommodate them. What are you, uh, you know, a, a soft snowflake. Uh, I am a little pudgy. I'm, I'm a little sick, <laughs> but I mean, like I, I'll be honest. Part, part of me does say like, haven't we already accommodated so much to these kids already so far? Is that kind of why we're in the problem that we are in now? I, 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 so and here's, here's where, and let's, let's go, let's, cause we talked about it before, let's, let's mm-hmm. do it before we started recording, let's talk about the Doug Ford comment because, because sure. I feel like there was some validity to what he said, but he, Doug Ford had something to say on this topic. Shocking. Okay. So, so I want to frame it as saying as, as a Doug Ford hater, I think that he started that statement the best that he could. And I think that he was trying to make a, a positive point in that, you know, we should, there shouldn't be violence against teachers. Teachers have a tough job schools need to be safe for students and for teachers. And we need to find a way to solve this. And, and that was great. You know what, Doug, I appreciate that. And then he went into, well, you know, if I ever did something like that, I would have gotten home and gotten beat up by my parents. And it's like, yeah, except we shouldn't be hitting our kids. So maybe the premier should not be suggesting corporal punishment as a solution. Yeah. It's the irony. I mean, and it, it, it's talk is cheap, isn't it? Because saying that kind of thing of this shouldn't happen is an easy thing for Doug Ford to say. And it plays to his base to say, oh, you know, back in my day, we just used to clout kids around the, ki- around the head and that was all fine. No one, you know. plays to his base. But you're exactly right. How are we going to solve this? It's going to be money. And it does come down to class sizes. Because we all remember that class we had when we were, well, I certainly remember classes I had where my normal class size of about 30 was 15 for one reason or another. And all of a sudden you had this class where you saw so much more of the teacher where the, the problem kid was not nearly as much of a problem because the teacher isn't trying to balance them with 30 other children and, and, and just spreading themselves too thin. Um, uh, it, with smaller class sizes, you, you do imagine that, that 
well, I think it has been proven time without number that smaller class sizes make discipline easier. Therefore, it's a better learning environment. Therefore, people learn better. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a virtuous circle. You know? Well, the, I, I can't say smaller class sizes. It's easier to intervene before the behavior becomes a problem. Yeah. And you see, if you know the kid in question is is a problem child, for lack of a better term, when you you kind of say okay i i can see i can see them going down that path their their head you know that that their their behaviors are their ticks that it's it's like a it's like a poker game right the teacher knows okay you have your tells you're going to go and someone's going to set you off to be disruptive in the classroom it's easier to either have an ea come in and say okay i'm going to head this one off before it becomes a problem or the teacher's able to intervene and it doesn't disrupt the whole uh, uh, dynamic of the classroom uh, when it when it happens, and and I think so. Like for example, one of my classes, I have thirty five kids, um, and I and I love that class. They're great kids, um, and I'm bouncing around all the time because they all have questions. It's economics. There's a lot of like thought process that goes into it, but it's really hard in that thirty five kid scenario to identify the one kid who you know is struggling and find a way to get them help. Like, and and I don't think people consider how much time teachers spend during lunch and prep and before and after school on the phone and talking and emailing to other teachers, to the guidance counselors to try to figure out like, Hey, like, like I have this one kid and, and I taught him last year in grade 11. And I, I, I uh, a lot of people are like new, like, like, yeah, he needs help. Like he's a good kid and, and he, he has so much ambition, but like, there's a lot going on there. And this year he has come so far and he's in my, he dropped out of my class in first semester because he was struggling, but he, he joined it in second semester and he's doing so good right now. And he's, he's going to graduate. He's going to get into the school that he wants to get into. And it feels so damn good to see that he is succeeding, but nobody sees the hundreds of hours of, of conversations between teachers and, and warning your, your next semester, like, Hey, like you have this kid, like keep an eye on him. He's a great kid. Um, but he struggles with this. And, 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 and teachers talk like when, when we have a kid like that, whether it's, it's a really, really strong kid or, or a weak kid or a good kid or a bad, whatever you want to frame it, whatever the kid's struggles are or successes are, there's a lot of times where you spend time at the beginning of each semester talking to a teacher. You're like, Hey, like I see you have this kid. Like if you have any questions about him, let, let, let me know. Like I've worked with the family before and, and that attention gets kids to succeed because I was a kid who succeeded that way. And I am helping kids succeed that way right now, but it is, it's, it's tough. Does it, does it play into kind of the mindset that we have as a society on education as kind of an input output model? of we've put the kid in the classroom, the teacher stands at the front of the classroom and says, you know, recite your ABCs and, and, and do your math and, and, you know, recite to me all the, all these important dates from this textbook. And then I expect, you know, 18 years later, you, they walk out of a high school and they're supposed to be able to, you know, uh, uh, go, they, they go into the next phase, go to university, college, trade program, whatever the case may be, but it's, a, it's a constantly this kind of like input output, whereas we don't take into account that some kids learn it a different way. Some kids learn more, more advanced quicker than others. They just, you put it in front of them, they pick it up or some kids, you know, it just takes them a little bit longer to process the information and the, and the circumstances uh, in front of them. And I'm just wondering, like, are we, do we just, as a society, do we have this concept of education backwards that we need to get away from this, you know, again, this input output mentality and just allow kind of that mushy middle of, Hey, you know, 
Some kids are going to become great artists. Some kids are going to become great scientists. And, and some kids are, might go on to become a great economist uh, someday. And we just kind of have to let them find their own path. And the idea of you as a teacher is there to nurture and guide them and present them with the options available to them. I think one of the tricky things there, because like you're, once again, like there's, there's only so much to go off of, but like, I am a, a firm believer in, in at the same time that education is a way to prepare people to enter the workforce because that is the nature of a, of a capitalist economy. Let's not kid ourselves. It is a way to get kids uh, to teach them how to socialize, to get them ready to whether it's go to university or college or the trades or the workforce. It is a way to get them ready to be adults in the world. But at the same time, the goal of education, the true goal of education, and I hate sounding like a damn hippie, but <laughs> education's about enlightenment. That that's what it, and, and but enlightenment doesn't mean finding nirvana. Enlightenment means learning about yourself. Like that student who I was talking about last semester, he learned about himself and he is becoming a better person. And he is going to hopefully do great things. He might collapse under the pressure of, of the real world. Or he could do some really, really cool things. And I can be proud to say, like, hey, you know that like famous guy? Like, I taught him. And you would not believe what he was like when he was a kid. And I'm sure that I have teachers who, <laughs> after seeing what I've been doing, uh, they're like, oh, I taught Frank. And damn, he was annoying. But like, look at him now. He's being <laughs> annoying and, and being famous for it or whatever. Now, now he's annoying on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like, it's like yeah, um, um, simultaneously school and education should be about Skill building should be about learning about yourself and should be about preparing people for the workplace. The problem is that I think when we say it's only about the workplace and we don't focus on the skill building, we lose out on the real value of education. But if we were to do a skills first approach to education, the workplace stuff would come with that because you need the skills to be valuable in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we keep shooting at the goal. But we're missing the base. You got to build your tower from the bottom up, not from the top down. Like, like we know what the base is. The base is skills, fundamentals, working on a team, uh, literacy skills and stuff like that. And, and when people say back to basics, and here's the other problem. Doug Ford's going to keep saying, we got to go back to basics with math, back to basics with reading and writing. That back to basics approach only works for 30% of people. And those 30% of people might become the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers, but it will fail the other 70%. We have systems that work. The discovery math curriculum that everybody hated it was used when I was in elementary school and in high school. It works because all of my friends are engineers and doctors and lawyers. It worked, obviously, um, because we had some of the highest graduation rates at the time. Um, and, and so, so like, we have to also be careful of saying, oh, we have to get back to basics. We have to go back to, to what matters. Yes. But we can't do that through rote memorization. And we can't do that through strict punishment of kids. Like, there are middle grounds here. And I think that's what my concern is when people talk about it, because... People think it's one or the other. There is such a spectrum in there. Yeah, I, I don't want to give the impression either that I'm some old school hard ass saying, you know, what we need is firm rules. Well, I, what I think is, what, what I feel like I'm hearing from a lot of teachers is they want to teach exactly in the way that you just described, with exactly that level of passion and with exactly, you know, it's like, that's why we got into this job um, to to change lives, to make people's lives better, to, to, to release the potential in children who, who may have gone off the rails, but for meeting me uh, in my professional capacity. Um, but we can't do that because the basic standards of behavior in my workplace are chaos. Uh, 
I'm dealing with feces on the walls or I'm dealing with knives. I can't release someone's potential when, when just, I can't even, you know, or, you know, so let's say it's not as bad as that. I can't release someone's potential when I'm, what I'm basically being reduced to is a, is a badly trained social worker dealing with society's problems rather than a teacher. Um, it's like, I haven't been tra trained to be a social worker, but that's actually what I'm kind of doing here. Uh, day in day out rather than teaching my subject uh, yeah, and, and, and so I'm glad you brought the social worker point and you, I, I'm not mm -hmm. I don't want you if you have another point you can go with but I, I just want to clarify something that's really important when people talk about uh, people working in the public sector whether you're a teacher a nurse or a cop we are before anything else social workers that is that is what we end up having to do and that is not the responsibility of a teacher or a nurse or a cop we are not supposed to be social workers, which is why I think there's a lot of complaints and failures in those three careers. And it's very easy to point fingers. And I do, um, and I point them at myself and I point them back at others. Um, but you're right. Like that is what's happening in a lot of these public sector jobs, because we keep asking for more and more and more, and we give maybe more funding, more teachers, more cops, whatever, but that doesn't solve the problem. We need more social workers. We need, we need a more robust mm -hmm. system. Um, you know what? Uh, let's just take a quick minute uh and then we'll be back with our quick second half for uh on healthcare okay uh so i think we have enough time just to cover because we did promise our listeners we we're going to touch on this uh for the latter half of the of the episode um so if you listen if you go back to uh listen to our, our episode from on the ontario health coalition with uh, the president uh natalie uh mara she was talking about bringing in a referendum on healthcare in the province, uh, which sounds all nice and warm and fuzzy. But when you really think about it, it's kind of a strange, strange that a, a, a not-for-profit is the one kind of bringing in this, like, what's the status quo on healthcare in the province? And I, my understanding is they're, they're going to, it's basically a, a survey. You can go and fill it out and say, what's the status on healthcare in your particular part of the province? And at some point, they're going to release the the findings, which I'm sure we'll report on when they finally do. But I do want to talk about the fact that why why is it that we have no easy access to data on the status of our health our, our healthcare system in this province? I know it's there, but it's a real pain in the neck to go searching. You're going through websites and 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 you can find wait times and whatnot. But in terms of like just scorecards on the things that matter most to Ontarians, it's really hard to find if you're not gonna go and actually maybe talk to the hospitals themselves. One of the interesting things that I think is, I'm gonna take a real hard pivot here, but I promise you I'm on the <laughs> topic. This is gonna sound crazy. All one, right. one of the benefits that came out of COVID was that we learned that our government can move quickly and our government can collect necessary data and our government can actually be successful and do things and work together when it's needed. Why can't it be like that all the time? Because there is no data collection in Ontario or in Canada in general. And one of the strings that was attached to the healthcare funding from Trudeau was that we implement this um, data collection system across the provinces. And that is great because we need this metrics-based data to make sure that A, the provinces are spending the money where it needs to go, and B, that money is doing what we say it's going to do, and C, that we know how many doctors are seeing how many people at how many times. And, and all. Like, we need that data. Like That is how we are in the age of AI and the age of metrics. 
how are we not keeping that information? That is that is gold in the modern mm-hmm. era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's it's a problem. It's a problem I've noticed, you know, going from growing up in a different country and and also contrasting how Canada contrasts with with the states, where this attitude towards data is all data is open all the time, and it's one way. In, Whereas we take a sort of very secretive attitude to, to to data in this country, where you know even during COVID, you know it's like the data about where outbreaks were happening and and why they were happening was couldn't be shared because as well that's potentially personally identifiable. And okay, there's good reasons for that. At the same time, we need to have the data and use it to to to. To properly develop our policies and to properly target our, our, our treatments, and it's also—I mean, it's—it's, it's, and we should mention that the—I'm just looking at Ontario Health Co- Coalition's website right now. So their 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 referendum, as they call it, is happening on May the 26th, May the 27th, which is uh, next weekend, uh, next Friday and Saturday, um, and you can go to their website and find out about that. Problem is. The bill that they're having a referendum on, saying vote no to privatization, passed already. Um, the bill is the bill is done. Uh, it's now an act. Um, and I actually saw a, a tweet today. I can't remember who it was from, but basically saying this has happened. It's the game is over, and uh, actually blaming the media for not um, really covering it uh, well enough. And I mean, that's an interesting point. I don't know. I, Joel, you and I have tried to cover the healthcare story for the last six months oh, yeah. or so, and it was actually very difficult to get anybody to speak to us. Well, I remember um, we, we contacted many, uh, yeah. uh, not lens, but uh, hospital groups. Uh, we've contacted many of them around the 905. Uh, and some were very initially they said yes we'd love to come on fantastic let's try let me go get some talking points and all of a sudden like within 24 hours no i've been told i'm not allowed to come on your your podcast did you guys, so here's something that might be interesting of note did you guys hear about what happened with the toronto star and dr moore i did hear about that that he yeah so dr moore they asked him to come on to do an interview and he said yeah sure let's let's do this thing and then within like 24 or 48 hours, like very shortly afterwards. Um, he they didn't cancel a, until an hour before the interview or something. Right. Yeah. But it, it be, the Toronto Star found out through, I believe it was a uh, freedom of information request mm-hmm. that basically at that time it was Minister Jones, who's uh, Minister yeah. of Health. She, yeah. Um, she basically, in her, her office interfered and said, no, you're not doing it. You're, Specifically which is, because they didn't like the journalist. Right. Which... I mean, I, I, kind of, I kind of would be flattered if we were that notorious <laughs> within conservative circles. That no, like, no, no. But I think it does go to show that there is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like we, we, a, we know, I mean, I mean, one of the subjects we've covered the most over the, since we've been doing this podcast is education and, and schools. Um, and it's probably because our audience seems to really appreciate it. I mean, I've seen statistics and the subject that we're both very interested in and passionate about. Uh I'm just as passionate about healthcare, really, but but it, it we have struggled to find people who will speak, uh, and that's a problem. And it it is a problem that this massive change uh, where healthcare is being privatized, which seems 
well, you know, it, we're not really having a full, fully fledged kind of conversation about that. I mean, uh, because it was never an election issue. Like Doug Ford, mm. and this is conservatives in general, but Doug Ford's really good at this. Good. They they run on no platform, mm-hmm. and then they they tear up the green belt. They privatize healthcare. They start to they they've tried multiple times to privatize certain parts of education. They just failed each time, and one of them was because of COVID. Thank God. Once mm-hmm. again, the success of COVID was stopping Leche from privatizing part of education. Um, but like th- that is that's what happens when you say there's no conversation. You're right, there is no conversation because the conservative playbook is let's run on nothing except for. Balancing the budget, which none of them have been able to do and tend to make deficits worse. Uh, and then they slash and burn, slash and burn, slash and burn, starve the beast. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to something you, you said, Frank, that I thought was interesting. You know, the, 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 the fact that data on healthcare is very secretive, or at the very least, very difficult to get, whereas it should be a standard, I, I think like all data revolving education, healthcare should be an easy one-stop website go download a spreadsheet and it's all your all your raw data is in there um but in the age of, you're right we're, we're heading into the age of ai and right now it's great like i can type up some show notes pretty quickly i can i can get some tweets generated really quickly to, to help on that but when you start getting into being able to put in this raw data and say extrapolate a plan forward to get to x result you know, I, I want to, I want to reduce wait times at this hospital by 20%, right? And imagine you or I being able to put that into an AI program, say, find me a path forward. I've got this budget. This is the data that I have now. Find me a way forward. I want to reduce wait times for hip and knee surgeries by 20%. And imagine an AI program is able to present a, a path forward where we didn't, it wasn't a matter of cutting, um, uh, wages or, or staff it's just not optimizing. A, just optimizing and saying hey you know what if you if we operate this uh 24 7 this department 24 7 and you hire somebody to operate this machine da, 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 and we can reduce your wait times by 20 percent and you or i you or i or anybody could go online and find it like how revolutionized how revolutionary would that be to our healthcare system where we don't have to or really any department in in Government that it's we could say it's right there. It's it's open access that anybody can take a look at this data and present a, a viable plan to to solve this. And it doesn't have to be like just one person. It could be anyone. Anyone on Ontario could say, "Hey, put in the data. Let's figure out a way to save us some money, or 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 reduce our wait times, or can we start streamlining operations, or maybe even predict." future pandemics. So we're able to handle them, them a lot better than shutting down the province all the time. The data is there. Like the data, the data is there. We can use it. Yeah. And I, I, I find it it's frustrating that it's being withheld by people who could really use it uh, in a more inventive way than, than the, apparently the, the power brokers that already have it. I think the fear should be more focused on the fact that AI will be revolutionary in healthcare. Um, but it's going to be revolutionary in the hands of Google. It's going to be revolutionary mm-hmm. in the hands of, of these of these multinationals. And so, um, will our healthcare continue to be public? But we utilize private partnerships, which can be good. Or do we say, oh, well, AI's made things just so damn efficient. Why why have public healthcare? 
Why not, why not privatize more and more and more? So like, for example, Google recently did some like weird protein thing where they were trying to, it might not be proteins, it might not be getting the details of it wrong, but they were, they basically um, simulated what would have taken traditionally thousands of years and came up with like 20 million different protein combinations of something. I, I, don't, I don't know the exact specifics. They also were able to develop, I don't know if it was called a microscalpel or something like that, but they were basically able to develop uh, some new protein-based tool that will allow for um, more, uh, I don't know if it's gene editing or bacterial editing, but like basically uh, it's going to, it's going to, it will revolutionize healthcare. And this is just with modern AI, the highest level AI that's not going to be available to public, but this is the AI that will be used in healthcare for hospitals in medicine. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, like, this this is the future, and 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 we are just letting it stay. Which is fine; it can, it can stay in the hands of, of of the private entities that created. I'm not saying that that they need to be sharing it with everybody, but I don't think that the people in power appreciate just how much everything is going to change, and I don't think they want that change to happen truly for the benefit of all citizens. They they see dollar signs. Mm-hmm. That's what they see. It's it's an interesting question if you, if you look at the the kind of money that a corporation like google or amazon or uh, facebook or any of these guys has compared with 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 you know even major uh, national governments corporations are bigger uh, and those corporations in particular are bigger um government to an extent is being out evolved you know are we still obsess about government all the time uh, we still follow it in the news. We still talk about it on Twitter. Uh, we we obsess about it, and yet the real developments in our society that that have changed our whole lives have, by and large, not come from government. They've come from, well, first, the education sector. If you want to talk about the internet, it was initially from, from you know physicists at CERN, um, but. But but also from from the companies that have grown from that from 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 the Amazons and the Googles of this world, that are just innovating at a whole other level from everybody else who can just take I something. Like, that, yeah, I push back on that slightly though, just because like so for example penicillin, like I mean that was made at, at U of T um, through funding from the government. I, I know. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not. It's just. I mean, in yeah. the last in the last in. In the last, you know, last 20, 30 years, there's been a shift away from the government really being uh, the primary or only ultimate kind of uh, source of innovation in funding for education or whatever to uh, one or two big companies dominating things in a way. And Google could just say, okay, we want to, what, 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 what uh, area do we just want to completely take over today? Self-driving cars, sure, right, we'll throw a few billion at that. And have the ability to make change in a way that no government can, can even remotely comprehend. Uh, I, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's more of a... It, it's something we maybe don't appreciate enough as a driving force in the way the world is is moving. Um, we still obsess about what Justin Trudeau is saying or Polyev or Ford or whoever. It's like... Well, Really? Are they the guys well, who are going to change our lives between now and the next 50 years? Like I, I always look and say, government can, it can be frustrating. It can be a pain in the neck. It, it can be, there are times when you look back and you say, oh my God, why are they doing it this way? 
at the end of the day, government is the one thing that every person in this country, 18 years of age or older, has a direct say in. You may not like it. You may not like who, who's governing, like who's behind the, the wheel at the moment, but you you have a more you have a more direct say in what your government does than you do in what Google, Amazon, Apple, or any major corporation does. And even if you uh, own shares with PFOF and stuff like that, like half the time you don't even really get a vote. Right. But I do get a vote every four or five years. Yeah. At for three for three governments, my municipal, provincial, and and federal government. So to say government can't do anything, I I I definitely I, I agree with your sentiment there, Roland, that the 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 collective consciousness is oh government is just so useless. In reality, it's it can do amazing things. I I this completely on a, on a tangent, but I like the fact that it's it's government that is sending a Canadian to the moon. It's government. It's not it's not Elon Musk and SpaceX. It's not uh uh Jeff Bezos and his uh his dick rocket, uh whatever it's called. It's, and and it's oh it's a yeah. And it's definitely not uh Richard Branson and, and his space plane. It's it's government, it's good old-fashioned government funding, government collaboration. It, and it, like I, I think I'm I I I look forward to the, when that happens, but I also say like it, it wasn't private enterprise that did it. It's it's government that's doing it. Public tax dollars at work. So to say, oh, they're useless. No. It, yeah, it, and I feel it wasn't so much that I, I wasn't implying that they're useless as just that there is there are the extent to which major corporations have resources. Yeah, have resources and have kind of um, stolen a march on on areas that previously would have been seen as government prerogatives is something we maybe just need to understand and appreciate more uh, and be aware of uh, because they are private companies and they are looking at the dollar signs mm-hmm. um, at least you no know, I'm you know I'm just I'm just thinking of my 30 year old copy of Blade Runner here and and you know the the, the, <laughs> the, the guys people, which which version <laughs> oh uh, the, the one the one with the unicorn of course you know, uh, okay. <laughs> a director's cut <laughs> uh, or which director's cut anyway now we're really getting off the subject but you know that that kind of uh, um, you know post-democratic corporate driven world that that was envisioned in that kind of sci-fi movie uh it's a little bit where we're heading and we just need to be aware of it i mean it's 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 yeah. just history happening as we watch it and we need to say well you know we focus again because we focus so much on government and i i like you think i think government has massive potential for good when it puts its mind to it it just it's depressing how seldom it does put its mind to it um uh, and we also need to be just keep keep our eye on that on that other side of things, which is which is which is new, um, but which is you know has the potential to make the government of Ontario say look like uh, a game of tiddlywinks compared with with what you know Google can do in an afternoon. Well, on that cheery note, uh, <laughs> maybe we, maybe we bring this episode to a close. Yeah. <laughs> I've silenced everybody. <laughs> I would like to say that I, I do believe um, that 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 we, we the future will be bright. 
uh, it, it might it might take a while to get there, but I'm I'm as much as I think that there's a lot of pain and suffering that will happen in a lot of different areas. I I am a firm believer in um, that we're not going to hit a cyberpunk dystopia. Like I, I there's going to be growing pains, but but I I think that 200 years from now we will be closer to Star Trek than to Blade Runner. <laughs> I, I I I wholeheartedly agree with you. Hundreds of years, though. Hundreds of years. <laughs> The the one thing with Star Trek is its fans are actually making the world, yeah. Uh, but I I, I I wholeheartedly agree with your your sentiments there. I, I would say also, if you zoom out of history and Roland, you should pre- appreciate this. If you zoom out from the viewing of history far and far enough away, you see the incredible amount of progress that we as a human species has made. Um, it hasn't been it hasn't been pretty and it hasn't been clean, but I do think. We are a progressive species. We we try and find ways of getting along together. So I agree. We're 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 the future is hopeful. We just have to make sure that it that it is so. So, thanks everyone for listening. Frank, very much. Thank you for taking your time to uh, come on and uh, give us your two cents. And we'll see everyone or hear talk to everyone on the next one. Bye bye. Bye That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.